And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and we will be in verses 11 through 21 this evening. In a sermon preached on April 3rd, 1859, titled, Mr. Fearing Comforted, Charles Spurgeon opened his sermon saying these words, quote, It seems as if doubt were doomed to be the perpetual companion of faith. Later, he says, the heart that hath never doubted had not yet learned to believe. The reality is, if we think about it, we all will suffer and have suffered in some form or fashion with doubt in the Christian life. Spurgeon goes on in this sermon to say, doubt the one who has never doubted. And tonight, as we would consider the, this passage of Scripture, we're going to see two kinds of doubt from two kinds of people with two kinds of responses from Jesus. In a sermon that I've titled, Why Do You Doubt? So follow along with me in your Bibles. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This ends the reading of the word of God. We are introduced here immediately in verse 11 to the opponents. You would notice here, Mark opens up and says, the Pharisees. Now, most of us who have grown up in church from the little flannel boards all the way up have been acquainted with who the Pharisees are. They're the bad guys. And if you're not acquainted with them, but you've been following through the Gospel of Mark up until this point, even if this is your first introduction to them, through Mark, you realize at this point, they are the very bad guys. These are the ones who stand in opposition to Jesus and his ministry. They are the religious people of their day. They think that they have the corner on the truth, that they've got it all figured out. They are the excessive traditionalists. And their mindset is basically this. If you don't practice your faith the way we do, you're doing it wrong. 
So Jesus is a thorn in their side. He's been a thorn in their side ever since he walked into the synagogue that day and healed the demon-possessed man in chapter 1 of Mark. He's the miracle workers. The crowds flock to Jesus. He teaches in such a way that people will go days and days without eating just to listen to him teach. The Pharisees can't get a crowd like this. They can't get attention like this. Jesus teaches as one with authority. He's the envy of the Pharisees. Yet they also think he is a rule breaker because of how lax he is about the Sabbath. I would just remind you in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees conspire with Herod and his, his, his family how they are going to destroy Jesus. In chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, it is already clear they want to kill him. And the problem is that these Pharisees, they don't understand who he is. They don't understand what he's about. They don't even understand why Jesus is among them. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. So these we are introduced to immediately here in verses 11 through 13 are the opponents who doubt. And the Pharisees are really not an anomaly. No, they're no different than almost anybody else who is an opponent of Jesus. Opponents of Jesus have often made up their minds before they even have all the information. With little information, minds are made up. And sadly, we can oftentimes ourselves contribute to this as well. Because oftentimes the opponents, the opposition, they judge Jesus based off of the church or what they see in other Christians. And they come with false conclusions. But we must understand this also. There will always be opponents of Jesus so long as the kingdom of Satan is still on this earth. But we are to show people through our lives and through the church the beauty of Christ and not to give them any reason to be opponents of Christ. So notice here, these are the opponents that we are introduced to in verse 11. And we will see their approach. Follow along with me again. Look at verse 11. They came and began to argue with him. I want you to observe here, this is the wrong approach. Because they came with the wrong attitude. And it says they were arguing with him. You say, well, what do, they, what do they have to argue with Jesus about? Well, I can only suppose that they would have come and thought something like this. If you are really the Lord of the Sabbath, who you say you are, we need a sign from heaven. They're not asking for another miracle. They're actually asking for confirmation to come down from heaven to validate who Jesus claims he is. They're not saying show us a miracle. They were okay with miracles. Some of it was sleight of hand in those days. They weren't so worried about that. We live in a in, in postmodern world, so we have to understand they were before modernity in, in, in a pre-modern world. Nonetheless, they're asking for Jesus to call a sign down from heaven. You call yourself the Son of Man, Jesus says. This is what they would say to him. You say you have the authority to forgive sins. We need a sign from heaven to confirm this. Give us some verification, Jesus. Call down proof that you are actually approved by God and maybe will believe you. This is what they're arguing about. They demand, we see here, they demand seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
Well, this, de- this demand from the Pharisees reveals two presuppositions that they come to Jesus with. The first, that this request here of Jesus is dishonest because they came with unbelieving hearts. It is fueled by unbelief. Second, we would see from this request here is they do not have any respect or regard for Jesus. Again, verse 11, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Had they known who they were speaking with, they would never have done this. The Pharisees know the law. The Pharisees are well acquainted with their Torah, with the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Seeking a sign from heaven to test Jesus. And so what's the result here that we would see from this brief encounter that Mark just gives us like this snapshot in one verse? Well, the results are in verses 12 and 13. We would read that he sighed deeply in his spirit. In a previous section, the one not right before this, but before that, where he heals the man who is deaf and with a speech impediment, we, realize, we would read there that Jesus, verse 34, sighed and looked at him. Now we see it again. Jesus sighs once more, but this time is different. The wording is different here. Mark tells us that he sighed deeply in his spirit. There is a deep and profound grieving on the part of Jesus in this moment. Deep in his spirit. This really means that, that this tactic, this arguing, this coming at Jesus cut him to the heart. And why? It is because unbelief is the most grievous sin to the heart of God. It is unbelief that drives the Pharisee. It is unbelief that is the unpardonable sin. It is unbelief for which the consequences are eternal. And Jesus knows the plight of the Pharisees, and this grieves him to his heart. He sighed deeply in his spirit. They cannot believe because they will not believe. It's as though Jesus would say, even if I gave you a sign from heaven, you still will not believe. So Jesus responds to them, no sign. Matthew adds in the, in the parallel account, Jesus says, except for the sign of Jonah. And what does that mean? Death and resurrection. Jonah's a type pointing to the, 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 the fulfillment as Jonah went into the to the belly of the fish for three days. So the Son of Man will go into the heart of the earth and he will rise again. And he says, no sign but the sign of Jonah. So Jesus says, the last and final sign for this wicked generation will be death and resurrection. And even in that sign, they still will not believe. And we would read here in verse 13 what I would think is the four saddest words in all the Bible. And he left them. And he left them. What we can see here of these opponents who doubt Jesus is that they drive Jesus away, and the saddest part is it doesn't even bother them. So let's ask even of this, these few verses here, what is the problem? What's the problem with the Pharisees? 
they come to Jesus as skeptics seeking a sign and not coming as those with faith seeking understanding. That's the problem that we see here. And the Pharisees are like most people in our world today. They are the opponents who doubt. They are the opponents who doubt. So let me give you three brief lessons here, even from this this kind of takeaway from these three verses, and we'll go into the allies who doubt. I think one thing we can learn from this passage and that we can see here is this. We are to share Jesus with the opponents who doubt. We are to share Jesus with them. We also need to know when it's time to not. When people begin to argue and to doubt, they demand signs and proof, we need to be wise. You aren't kicking down closed doors. We need to wrap up the conversation. So share Jesus with them, but also know when it's time to not. Second, remember that no one has been argued into heaven. Keep that in mind and remember. Apologetics, reasonable defense, logical defense of the faith, great. Apologetics, you know, as Peter would say, to to always give an answer or, or an apology or a defense for the hope that is in you. We should know and we should understand we have a reasonable, logical faith. This isn't blind faith. It, it, it makes perfect sense when you have eyes to see, of course. But remember this, apologetics is a means, but it is not the end. We can be faithful to present a reasonable and logical faith, but we cannot make someone believe. And third thing, principle that I would take away from this, you can win an argument and lose a person. And if you do that, you lost. Jesus departs from his opponents who doubt, and we need to have the wisdom and the discernment when to do the same. These are the opponents who doubt, and this is the response of Jesus. He left them. But now we see here in verses 14 through 21, another group. And these are the allies who doubt. We're introduced to they in verse 14. Now they, I think we can discern who the they are pretty quickly. It's the disciples and what's going on here? They have departed. They're departing from uh, the, the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, and they are going to make their way up to Bethsaida. So they're going to go up north, kind of northwest. This is their destination that they're heading to. And these disciples must re- remember this that they are the master's men. These are the 12, these are the hand picked ones that have been called by Jesus to be discipled by Jesus, to walk with Jesus. These are the ones that will eventually turn the world upside down. But right now, these are the ones that forget to even bring food with them. These are the foundations of the church with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. But they can't even care for themselves to bring dinner on the boat. This is a group that struggles greatly. So when, a quick thing, when you see somebody else struggling, you never know. They might turn the world upside down. Be patient with those people. Think about how this conversation went down as they had gotten on the boat. Peter looks over to Andrew. Hey, bro. I'm kind of getting a little hungry. How about you pull out some bread? Let's break some bread, Andrew. Let's, let's eat. And Andrew's looking around like you're talking to me. 
So maybe Andrew kind of looks over and to Philip, who's always calculating and always planning and always got his, you know, figuring out how it's going to go down. And so Andrew will say, hey, Phil, Peter and I, we're getting kind of hungry. You're always planning ahead, right? You brought the bread, didn't you? Philip's, uh, I don't know. I mean, Matthew's a tax collector. He's been collecting a lot of things for a lot of years. Maybe we ask him. You got, you got the food? Matthew's, Matthew's got nothing. Simon the Zealot's whispering, on, oh, we should never have trusted tax collectors. You know? And so all of these guys start turning in on each other. Who forgot the food? It says there's one loaf. I could suppose it might have been Judas. He pulls it out of his cloak. I brought something for myself. They're thinking, you're always thinking of yourself, Judas. Well, here we go. We have one loaf of bread. We're on this boat, and we're, we're, we're sailing up here. We've got no food. We're hungry. John just doesn't want anything to do with this, so he just kind of inches his way closer to the bosom of Jesus and thinks, hey, if I can just <laughs> get out of this mess, that's fine. But now they're, they're, these are the master's men, and they're fighting over each other. Who, who forgot the bread? And then Jesus speaks up, and he says, watch out. Verse 15, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, and the leaven or the yeast of Herod. You know what they hear? Bread. Jesus is saying, don't eat bread from Pharisees. Don't eat bread from Herod. Now we don't have any bread. They're totally missing the point of what Jesus is bringing to them at this moment. So hungry turns into hangry, and they begin to blame each other. So you notice here, Jesus, it's almost like they didn't even hear Jesus. Verse 16, they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. The Son of God is teaching them in this moment, and they're thinking, I want to eat. What are they doing? They're doubting in this moment. It's a different kind of doubt. It's the doubt of uncertainty. And they miss the whole point of what Jesus is telling them. Matthew makes it clear for us in chapter 16, verse 12. He tells us that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is saying, watch out for the doctrine and the practice and the teaching of these groups, of, of the Pharisees and, and in Mark, he says, and, the, and, and Herod. And so they missed the point initially. So let's just kind of break on that and explain what Jesus is talking about, and then we'll finish up the rest of this passage, because this is the order of the verses that Mark wrote them in. So, what is he talking about here when he says the leaven of the Pharisees? Leaven, it's a little bit of yeast. Well, if we were to remember and we were to just look back, maybe even on the page before in our Bibles, the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 1 through uh, 13, really. The leaven of the Pharisees is traditionalism. What were they doing? They were elevating religion above revelation. God's special revelation of his word. We must understand that revelation, this being revelation, God's special revelation, this is what guides faith and practice. This is what guides us in all that we do and all that we don't do. This is what informs and this is what guards true religion. So what is their leaven? It is legalism. It's unbelief. It's doubt. Now, how much leaven do you need? Only a little bit. Jesus teaches everywhere, everywhere, elsewhere, a little leaven ruins the whole lump. 
You don't need much of it. It's subtle. You don't need much to affect the whole thing. J.C. Ryle said, quote, every error in religion has been said to be truth abused. An interesting thought. Whereas the leaven of the Pharisees is, 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 is excessive traditionalism, the leaven of Herod would be the complete opposite. It's secularism. Who's Herod? Well, we don't need to go all the way back, but we're introduced to him and the death of John the Baptist in chapter 6. And he's got, what's his problem? He, he, he's motivated by his own lustful passions, his own sensual desires. He sees his brother's wife and says, I want her. With Herodias, we understand that account. Leads to the death of John the Baptist, that faithful brother. And so secularism. So what Jesus is saying here, the leaven of Herod is a little bit of worldliness, a little bit of godlessness, a little bit of immorality. Telling yourself you have grace. And you have grace, therefore I can be forgiven. It's like preemptive sin. God will forgive me later. Now we must understand, these two, leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod, are the two extremes. Both are false religions, and ultimately they're fueled by doubt and unbelief. But the disciples miss this too, because they are fueled by doubt. A different kind of doubt, but an uncertainty. That's what we see in verse 16, as they were talking and discussing with one another. There's the disciples' doubt. Think about it. Think about that opportunity that they had. They're sitting on this boat. There's 13 of them. There's 12 plus Jesus. They've got one loaf of bread for 13 people. What have they already gone through? Seven loaves for 4,000? Five loaves for 5,000? Don't you think one loaf for 13 would be sufficient? It is a golden opportunity for them to exercise faith. Remember what Spurgeon said, doubt is a companion of faith. But no, they don't. And so what we see here in verses 17 through 21 is the master's lesson. We see the master's lesson in this. Jesus hears the conversation going on. He, he perceives what they're doing and they're, they're arguing and they're, they're not happy with one another and they're playing the blame game. Who forgot the bread? And Jesus asks one of the most profound questions that has been ever asked by a human being. He says, why? Why? Have you ever been asked that question before? I certainly have. If you ever were a child, you've been asked that question before. And by virtue of all of you being here right now, I know that you've been asked why at some point in your life. And Jesus asks the question, why? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And then he follows up with a series of seven questions that's to get to the heart of their doubts. Growing up, it was a question that I was on the receiving end often of. Sometimes it is, what were you thinking? Other times it's simply, why? Now, as I've become a father, I find myself asking that question a little more than I ever imagined I would. Why did you do that? Why did you, why, why, why? I don't want to embarrass my children, so I won't tell you their responses, but they're sometimes the most craziest responses that I've ever heard. 
Why? Think about it. The conversation that they were having on this boat. This is literally the worst possible conversation that they could have been having. They're arguing about how are we going to have food? Hello, Jesus is on the boat. It is doubt. They're worried about running out of food. They had just seen the master break bread and create matter. And so Jesus unleashes these series of questions. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And ears do you not hear? In other words, Jesus is asking them, do you still not get it? Do you still not see? I'm literally standing right in front of you and you're worried about bread. Do you not remember? Oh, I wonder how that question pricked the heart. When I broke the five loaves, verse 19, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they reply, maybe sheepishly, 12. And when we had the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. They remembered clearly in those moments. It's as though Jesus is putting his hands up in the air and saying, what do you still not yet understand. As I alluded to, as a dad, I have had teaching moments very similar to this one. And again, far more than I ever imagined. Strangely, about pretty much the exact same subject. Children, at least mine, their life seems to revolve around food. And I'm not kidding. Mine are very much foodies. You know, I'm not going to mention any names, but usually at night, and not so much anymore, but in the past, we would put some of the children to bed, and some, they would like, you know, bedtime story. Would you like, Dad, would, will you pray with us? And Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the children, <clears throat> in order to put this child to bed peacefully, would whisper in his ear, oh, now I just revealed which one, maybe, we would whisper, what he was going to eat for breakfast the next day. And he would go to bed with the biggest smile on his face if you would tell him bacon and eggs, pancakes and toast. And that was all that he cared about. The others want prayer. The others want, you know, Bible stories. He wants to know what he's eating. And it happens a lot. Questions such as they're worrying about whether or not they're going to eat dinner. And I ask, I said, did you have dinner yesterday? Yes. Did you have dinner the day before that? Yes. Do you think that you'll probably have dinner tonight? Has there ever been a day in your life that you didn't have dinner? Well, no. So do you think you will eat dinner tonight? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Then I want to throw my hands up and say, why? See, the questions that Jesus asked and the clear responses of the disciples were to indicate that the past provision is meant to lead to present trust. That's what they weren't seeing. Jesus saying, have I not cared for you? Have I not provided for you? What makes you think I won't continue to do that? It was their doubts. And then we have this final question in verse 21. Do you not yet understand? Kind of like a hanging way to end this section, right? 
Where's the happy ending? The scene just changes after this. We're just left hanging with a question. How do we answer this question? Well, the faithful answer is no. They do not yet understand. But if you would just cheat and read ahead a little bit, in two more sections, you have Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in this moment, they do not yet understand, but this is a set-up question for the next two sections. With the healing of the blind man, and ultimately Peter's great confession. So observe here the two different responses of Jesus to the two groups who doubt. Remember what he did to the opponents. He left them. What about to his allies? He corrects them. And I think the point here that we would see by looking at both of these accounts was certainly of the disciples and their doubt and their uncertainty. They failed to grasp Jesus' love, care, and provision for them. And in putting these together, Mark gives us two accounts of doubt, two responses of Jesus, which I think leaves us with one question we need to ask of ourselves. Why do we doubt? Why do you doubt? So let's make application here of this passage of Scripture. First, we need to determine what category we belong to. Are you an opponent or are you an ally? Let me remind you what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. The opponents who doubt say, I will only believe if I get a sign from heaven. It's a sad statement. Because evidence is everywhere. Evidence is everywhere. Creation, conscience, Christ, the church. They all bear witness to the truth that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And that Jesus reigns even in this moment. There's only one message in the Bible for the opponents who doubt. That is to turn and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to turn and believe. To begin the journey of faith seeking understanding. We might have doubts. That's, that's okay. There's a difference between doubting and skepticism and having doubts when you still are faithful and faith-seeking understanding and growing in those. Those are two different categories. So if you're an opponent who doubts, pray. Pray and ask God for faith to trust in Christ. Believe the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, who came and lived a perfect and sinless life to die on the cross and bear the penalty for his people. He rose from the dead on the third day, the sign of Jonah, so that all who believe in him will have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. Begin the journey of faith-seeking understanding. If you are an opponent, I would encourage you, I would plead with you, do not let doubt determine your eternity. But for the rest of us and the majority of us here in this room, we can probably identify better with the allies who doubt. We are believers. We are trusting in the finished work of Christ. But we struggle at times, do we not? 
All too often, doubt, uncertainty comes from three significant areas in our lives, the physical, financial, and future. These are all things that would keep us awake at night, give us the uncertainty about what's going to happen. Let me remind you of four things, even from this text, and the faithful witness of Scripture. First, that the Lord cares and the Lord provides for His own. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxiety and doubt cannot coexist with faith and trust. Anxiety and doubt come from a negative self-talk. That voice inside your head that never tells you anything good is the source of much anxiety and much doubt. Faith and trust come from thankful prayer. So combat doubt with thankful prayer. Second, let me remind you that Jesus does not throw out those who doubt. And neither should we. In Jude 22, we are reminded, he says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. We are to bear with our brothers and sisters who doubt, who might be weak in their faith. It's not strong faith that gets anyone into heaven. No, it's actually the object of their faith that gets them into heaven. It doesn't matter the degree, but the presence, whether it be weak, whether it be a grain, whether it be the size of a mustard seed. Maybe somebody goes through this whole life weak and struggling and doubting and fighting for assurance all the days of their life. They're going to hear the same thing as somebody who didn't. And that's well done, good and faithful servant because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the merits by which you get to heaven is not the strength of your faith, but the righteousness of your Savior. So let us have mercy on those who doubt. Doubters don't need to be overly chastised, but encouraged and reminded. We can damage a doubter by discouraging them. We want to strengthen. We want to put courage in them. Third thing we see here is that Jesus corrects those who doubt. In a loving way, we are to help redirect people in their thinking, those who doubt, those who doubt the care and provision of God, they'd say, well, I know God loves, but I don't know if God loves me. Let us bear with one another. Let us love one another. Let us show them the beauty of God, the beauty of Jesus Christ, so that maybe those doubts would be changed and turned with faith and trust. Jesus corrects those who doubt. We are to do the same. Show them the promises of God in the word of God. Give them the word because the word is what works. And fourth, be patient with young believers, especially. You think about these disciples. They're young believers. They're not getting it. They can't remember to bring bread. Do you not yet understand? And they're like, no, we don't understand. Be patient with young believers. They might be a cub. This day, they might be a lion down the road. Let us nurture and care 
for the young believers as they make many mistakes and failures and they have bad theology and they're working through a lot of things. Okay, you were there. Some of you are there. Let's work together. We are all works in progress, but we are also, and must be reminded, we are God's handiwork. So, the question that I would leave with you tonight, knowing all that we know concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's, because you see where they're at here, they're still before the cross. We've got after the cross, we've got 2,000 years of history, and we've got the completion of the story. We have Revelation 22. We know how this story is going to end. We know that Jesus wins, and that he has gained victory, and he has crushed the head of the serpent, and that victory and forgiveness of sins has been secured in his name. We know all these things. Why do you doubt? Remember, as Spurgeon said, Doubt is the perpetual companion of faith. We must wrestle, and we must fight. And when you doubt, don't go into your closet and isolate, because doubt turns into isolation, and then you have this negative cycle of stinking thinking. You need to go to your brothers and sisters. This is why God gave us the church, so that we can encourage, strengthen. If I'm struggling, and you're, and you're walking well with the Lord, I need you to help me so that when you're there and I'm there, we can do this together, companions along the way. May our doubt ever be increasing as our faith is ever increasing in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder, your provision for us. You've given us more than we could ever ask, dream, or think of You have given us your son. You have provided the means. You have provided everything in salvation from start to finish. You even grant us the faith to believe. And for that, Lord, we are thankful. We are debtors to grace. We love you. We praise you for the gospel. Strengthen us in our faith. And that we would have mercy on those who doubt. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.